0: Okay, so uh, for those of you that, that uh, haven't been here for or in a, the last couple of weeks, we are kind of in the middle of an examination of innocence, which is a sub-examination uh, in the middle of something that I've been looking into in some detail for a little over a month, two months maybe, and that is childness. And to take you all the way back and do a real quick catch-up, The idea of childness is the word that I'm using to try to encourage us to examine and take seriously what Jesus said. (laughs) It's a new Zoom thing. It's okay, so everybody knows they're being recorded. Uh, It's sort of amusing, sort of annoying, back and forth between the two. Um, So the, the idea of childness, if you remember, the disciples were kind of debating with one another about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus took a little child and set that little child in the midst and said, uh, unless you are converted, and he, he added emphasis to it, he said, I tell you the truth, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, or whatever. He was, he was serious. He said, unless you are converted, you turn or converted and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom. And then we trace that back to the, the possibility that the greatest gift of the incarnation itself is to become a child of God. Because it says in John 12, I mean in John 1 12, that he came unto his own, his own didn't know him, but to as many as received him, those that believe on his name, he gave the ability, the power to become children of God. Not born of the flesh or born of the will of men, but born of God. And so, you know, we've been kicking around that question have we overlooked and have we put too little emphasis on Jesus' call? for us to become like children. And uh, so we've, we're studying some stuff that way. We're putting together a project online called Childness 101, kind of like a school of childness, because I complained when I first learned about it, there wasn't one, and there isn't that I know of, but there's going to be by the end of this month. So uh, so one of the aspects of childness that came up in a conference two weeks ago with Dan Mueller is he said, it's not just acting like a child. I thought this is true, you know. It's not just acting like a child. It's the innocence of a child. So I started digging into the innocence. And there's a scripture here on uh, Philippians 2.14 and 15. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world. Now, this is the New American Standard. I'm going to uh, also call it up on David Bentley Hart's translation because he, uh, he actually doesn't do something that they do in New American Standard that was confusing and troubling to me. And we'll get into that in detail. So David Bailey Hart's read like this. Do all things without murmuring and disputations, that you might come to be blameless and inviolate. Inviolate, if you don't know what that means, and I'm not trying to insult you by assuming you don't, but I didn't. So I'll tell you what I learned. Uh, it means not violated. That makes sense once you understand the word, uh, that you might come to be blameless and inviolate children of God without fault amidst a twisted and perverse generation among whom you shine as luminaries within the cosmos. I love the word luminaries in the cosmos. That's, that's so I like, that's why I, I piggyback on David sometimes. I like that a lot. So anyway, uh, last week we looked at, and we're going to review some of the, the words that is, are used in the New Testament for innocence. And, um, uh, and in the Old Testament as well. I found another Old Testament word that I want to catch us up on. And then then we're going to dig into really just two simple points and try to get uh, the worship team back up here by about 7.30. So we'll see how I do. So uh, the basic definition of innocence from Merriam-Webster is free from legal guilt or fault. And it also means free from guilt or sin, especially through a lack of knowledge of evil. I like that definition. I think that's cool. Innocence, a lack of knowledge of evil. And then harmless in effect or intention. And we're going to find that there's a Greek uh, word that, one of the many, that's used for innocence and translated innocent, some that has the harmless connotation. Okay. Um, Also, this is a little bit, uh, we probably don't value this in our culture as much as, as perhaps we should. Uh, lacking or reflecting a lack of sophistication, guile, or self-consciousness. Now, as a pastor, and what I'm learning about childness and all this kind of stuff, I can guarantee you that the idea of lacking self-consciousness as a central focus of yourself is very powerful and very desirable. And uh, even though it's hard to see that with children, because a lot of times they'll just erupt over something that doesn't go their way, the truth of the matter is they're not... They're not building those expectations on the kind of adult sophistication and self-consciousness that we do. And so I think that's cool. Ignorant and unaware, lacking or deprived of something. Uh, Again, those may not be seem as positive, but I do think they help us understand the concept of the word innocent. And so now we're going to apply that to the concept of innocence, which is what we're talking about. Uh, Freedom from legal guilt of a particular crime or offense. So in other words, if somebody were to bring a charge against you for doing something that you didn't do, ultimately you would hope to be found innocent because you didn't do it. You weren't guilty of it. Uh, Freedom from guilt or sin through being unacquainted with evil. Same. Uh, Lack of knowledge. Freedom from guile or cunning. Simplicity. I like that. A lack of worldly experience and sophistication. Now, I wouldn't have thought that would play such a significant role in my thinking as I'm digging deeper into the concept of innocence, but the lack of worldly experience and sophistication I think may be one of those things that turns around and bites us in the butt in our pursuit of childlikeness and innocence. And so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit, and then chastity, and then of course, uh, logically applied, all these just mean a person who's innocent, okay? Okay. All right, so Old Testament review. uh, We looked at these last week. Naki uh, is used 37 times in the phrase innocent blood, whether it has to do with uh, uh, innocent blood being shed, whether it has to do with conquering armies, whether it has to do with anything like that. It also means free from or clear of, particularly in relationship to an oath, and it has the concept of clean hands associated with it. So those other concepts are used four or five times in the Old Testament for the word naki. Um, But 37 times, it's the part of the phrase innocent blood. The next one is nakwa, and it's used 43 times, uh, often built around the concept of guiltless, but it also, uh, in a few other things, like maybe seven or eight, is to be made clean or to be acquitted, to be blameless or unpunished. And then, so these I introduced last week, and I'm not going into lots of detail about that. The next one is one I found this week that's in the, in the category of innocence and cleanness. It's uh, tahor. It's used a hundred times plus as either the word pure or the word clean. So it's a significant word in the Old Testament, but it's almost always pure or clean. And most of the time, it means ceremonially so or spiritually so. And the one place where uh kind of illustrates this is uh, in Psalms 51, David, after the incident with Bathsheba, when he's praying in that repentant prayer for God, he says, uh, create in me a clean heart. And he uses this word, to war. So it's, uh, he's asking for a really clean heart, not just a ceremonially clean heart, I'm certain, because he was convicted over the wrong of what he did. But uh, this is a lot. Now, the the one thing that the Old Testament concept is more focused on than the New Testament concept is, is the idea of ceremonial cleanness. And so it's a matter of having the right sacrifice done for you, being in the right position in relationship to the law, and that kind of stuff. There's not, I mean, that, that's not a knock on it. It's, it's just before he who knew no sin came to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, the ceremonial aspect of cleanness The the legal aspect of cleanness was the emphasis, and that's what we see in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are a number of words, uh, many of them, and I I added the one that I left off last time, so the list is appropriately longer. And there's one word that's not the way the others are. What's that thing they used to do? What one thing is not like, or this thing's not like, I don't know, it's a Sesame Street thing, and I don't remember it a long time ago. All right. So uh, this first word is athus, and it means no penalty. And it's a good one to illustrate. So if we look right here, this right there, the a equals the no. And the thus equals penalty. So it's a negation. And there's going to be a whole list plus one. And all of that whole first part of the list is going to be words of negation. And they, they're translated in various places, different translations as innocent or other words. So, you see how this breaks down? All the rest of them will be the same way. So, uh, akarios means not mixed or not mingled. So the ah is the no or the not. And the akarios is the mixed or mingled. And it, it, it has another connotation of being poured together. So it would be like you would take two different, uh, colors of liquid, and pour them together, and they would mingle and mix. So innocence is not doing that. It's not being mixed. It's not being mingled. It's not being uh, combined like that. Uh, If you see that reference there to Philippians 2.15, because Philippians 2.15 and Colossians 1, 21-22, we're going to look at a little more detail. Next one is akakos, and that has to do with uh, not worthless, not cast off, not harmless, or, uh, harmless not, not, not filled with harm, not intending harm, not doing harm. So that's what that one is. The next one is "amomos." momos, and, and momos, that word momos is a, a little bit longer uh, root that that's taken from, but it means to find fault or to blame or to blemish. And this particular word is used in both the scriptures we're going to look at later. That's why they're up there. But uh, So it means no blame, no fault, no spot, no blemish. And then ah, negletos, has to do with accusation. So there's no or unaccusable or unaccused or no accusation or unreprovable. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, amiantos. Is unsoiled or unstained or undefiled. Now, there's—it's similar to the um, amamos uh, because that has to do with spot or blemish or whatever. But this would be like um, unbruised, unsoiled, unstained, uh, unabused. So, for instance, uh, one of my—we were talking about this on Tuesday night study, and Elizabeth encouraged me to think of it in the context of one of my favorite. Biblical stories, which is the woman caught in adultery presented at the temple by the, the Jewish leaders that Jesus dealt with. And this kind of this kind of idea of unsoiled or unstained is uh, something that would definitely apply to that. So what I would ask you to think about is, and just to bring a very brief recollection of, of the story, Jesus did not condemn her. As a matter of fact, if you read this story, he didn't even bring up anything about adultery. Or her lifestyle, for that matter. It was the Pharisees that did that, and the people that presented her. And they said she was caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus didn't respond to that. Remember, he wrote down, wrote on the ground. And then he said, okay, that you who is without sin cast first stone. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then the, the interaction that Jesus had with her was, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And does no one condemn you? She says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and send them more. It struck me, Elizabeth, when you had me go through that again in my heart on Tuesday night, it struck me that he didn't even mention the defilement of adultery. He didn't even mention it. His solution to her defilement wasn't to even mention it. And then I started seeing, and I think you guys can too, do you see why the Holy Spirit inspired all these words that mean or speak to innocence, and they're all not something? Not something. Anaitios, not causing or not committing a crime. Uh, chargeless. This is one that gets translated guiltless sometimes and innocent sometimes. But it means that that you're not causing something. You're not the, the, the source of it. You didn't commit the crime. And then the last one, I believe, is uh, amemptos, and it means no fault or no blame. And it's one that's used in Philippians. Now, I would guess that if you think about it for a moment and allow your heart to kind of ponder over it, you have experienced at some point conviction regarding or anxiety over or fear over a penalty that you think you deserve or that somebody says you deserve. Okay. Uh, The idea of being double minded or of mixed intent and purpose I have the the accusation that you're you're worthless. The accusation that you're to blame, or that you're you're just not up to par. You're blemished. A hesitation to come into the presence of the Lord fully and openly. A hesitation to I mean, you know, what's the old joke about? I I, I I'd like to go to church, but I'm afraid you know the ceiling will fall in or something like that. Those kind of things, even even goofy ones, you know. These are the sort of things that are common in our psyche. They're common in our heart. We embrace them, and we assign value to them, and they govern, usually negatively, usually restrictively, how we act. Uh, how about being accused? You know, this is, a, this is an interesting one to me, because when we get to Colossians, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be presenting us unaccusable before the Father, unblameable. But I do things, I've done things, I've said things, I've thought things that it would be accurate to blame me for. All right, so what are we going to do about that? Uh, undefiled, unstained, I think the, the, the woman caught in adultery, you know. This is the beautiful thing about that story. I think she walked away undefiled by the power of the words of Jesus. Because this wasn't just one guy. I mean, think what it meant when some uh, religious student, religious leader, some Pharisee, some under-Pharisee, drug her before his brethren and before the teacher from Nazareth and said, this woman, (laughs) down she is, was caught in the very active adultery. How how, How did that make her feel? I mean, you could have defiance for a little while, but that's an awkward situation. Horrible. How would you like to be exposed for your sin publicly and your failure? But the way everything turned out in that instant, and it turned out that way for two reasons. It turned out that way because Jesus was there, right? And he did what he did, and he didn't do what he didn't do. But something we often forget, Jesus said, these words are not my own. I only do what I see the Father doing. This is the Father working in me. So that woman, who probably hardly ever, while she was committing adultery, thought about the Father that she had in heaven, was confronted with exactly how that Father saw her and what he thought about her when Jesus said, is there no one here to condemn you? And she said, no, Lord. And he said, well, neither does Father. He didn't say that. He said, neither do I. But he told us, he told his disciples over in John 14. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. These words are not my own. They're the Father working in me. So as sure as as Jesus said what he said, the Father was not condemning that woman. And he was empowering Jesus when he said, go and sin no more. I personally believe that gal walked away with a brand new empowerment of a changed lifestyle, transformed lifestyle, because of what Jesus said and because of what the Father willed. Because that's what Jesus said. It's the Father working in me. All right. Uh, How about not causing the crime, charges, faultless, blameless, all that kind of stuff. So here's the thing I want us to get. It's the one point I want us to get tonight, and I'm going to be a couple minutes late on 7.30. I want us to get the point that the reason there is this diversity, I believe this with all my heart, in these words, is because innocence is something that is real. It is eternal. It comes from our identity with God, from being made in His image, from being His child, and I do think it's related to childness. Innocence is something real. Penalties, mixtures, worthlessness, blame, accusations, defilement. These are not real. Now, some of you would say, probably, well, wait a minute, they are real. No, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I think we should change our mind about their reality. One, Paul says that the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are unseen are eternal. So at the very least, the things that we see, what those men saw that woman doing, what she saw herself doing, proved to be temporary in comparison to what the Father was doing in Jesus in her life. The seen things are temporary. The unseen things and innocence is an unseen thing. It's eternal. It's it's eternal because that's how people were made. Remember, I said last week, we would be much better served by a, a theology of the creation of Adam and the fall and all that if we thought that Adam was made innocent and then stumbled into the corruption, and that de- arrested his development, not to remind you of that really good TV series, but rather than to think he was perfect and then fell into depravity. Because he was still learning, he was still growing, and it was the abortion of that learning, that the derailing of that learning, that the knowledge of the tree of good and evil did. And so restoration is about restoring innocence, and it really is. Because innocence is who we are in Christ. It's who we are in God. It's who we are made as, as God's children. And all these things are things that we do because we can because of the brokenness and the fallen nature of our society. And we could probably argue and make some cases for sin natures and things like that. It's not the point tonight that I want to get into. But what I'm saying is these things come out of shadows. They come out of darkness, right? The adultery in that woman's life was a dark thing it was nothing she was created to do it was a perversion at the at the at the most power it had it was a perversion of love but it wasn't real and when real love took over in her life that would go away and it would carry no long-lasting effects and i know that seems hard to say because of all that could happen she could have got pregnant she could have got stds or crimes that we commit what I'm saying is if we can change the way we think a little bit, we will begin to see these things cannot last because they are not built of anything except the not that they represent. And Jesus came to restore what is and what had been lost from sight by sin. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Okay, so there's one word that's not a not. It's not a negation. And it's this word, dikaios. And it means just. And it's part of that dikaiosune family, uh, the DK family. It's all about righteousness. All right? So this one definition is contrasted as the affirmative against all the negations. And the reason there needs to be so many negations is because the devil doesn't play fair. If he can't get you on a mixture, and he can't sell you on the idea that you deserve to be penalized, well, he'll bring just an accusation out of nowhere. Or he'll blame you for causing something. All those things in the, in the boldface up there, except for the bottom one, all of those things represent the lies, the accusations, the deceptions, the the things that are sown into our life from the kingdom, or not the kingdom, the domain of darkness, to try to take away your identity as a child of God, created in His image. Because I'm telling you what, everybody that believes one of those lies, in fact, is a person made in the image of God, carrying His likeness. Because that's the only people that this comes against. It's all the people there are. But, they are. We can't use the word are to a mixed person. We can't use the word are to a worthless person. We can't use the word are to a fault to an accused. We can't. Those are things that happen to us. Those are things that are thrown at us. They're lies that are put on us. They're put on us because they're coming against who we are. Who we are is talked about by that but more importantly who we are is chaos. just right okay so the thing i looked at last week is the centurion and jesus use that word so this man is truly just okay but let me let me go to first uh, peter i want to read this one to you because this is the the crux of the matter and then we're going to nail down two quick scriptures and be done um all right first peter 318 the American Standard reads this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I'm not going to keep reading beyond it. It's pretty exciting. He goes on and preaches the spirits in prison, so on and so forth. He died for sin. That's why he had to die. But, the, but who he died for was us. And he was just for the unjust so that we might be presented to God. Because the lack of our justice was the result of believing and the ensuing actions that that belief led to. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Innocence is, based, innocence is the expression and the nature of our righteousness being made in the image of God, being an image bearer, carrying his image and likeness in us, being created as his children, created to grow into sons, created to grow into kings and priests. That's our innocence. Innocence is real. Can it be defiled? Yes. Can it be attacked? Yes. Can it be... Can it become something that doesn't apply to a person? No. It's not vulnerable like that. It's soilable, bruisable, penalizable, accusable, blemishable. It's not ever going to not be who you are in the eyes of God. Okay? That is going to require, and this is just one step in a few, That's going to require us to change our theology a little bit. Because if we think that we're, apart from God, utterly separated and defined by these things, we're going to have a hard time thinking that innocence is is really who we're created to be and who God sees us as under the layers of all this junk. But I'm going to do my best over the next little while to help as many of us as possible understand it. So, um, this is a quote from St. John of Kronstadt, and it says, Do not confuse the man who is the image of God with the sins in which he fell. Sin is an episode. The true nature of man is the image of God, which always remains. Read that again. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Do not confuse the man who is the image of God with the sins in which he fell. Sin is an episode. The true nature of man is the image of God, which always remains, St. John of Cronstedt. Amen. All right, so think about this in relationship to the woman caught in adultery. The act of adultery that she was caught in, or the subsequent ones, the series of them, whatever, the way put in that man's terms, that was an episode. So what you had was you had uh, an image bearer of God, a daughter of God, an innocent child of God, that stumbled into an episode that did everything it could to steal her dignity, to steal her identity, and to define her. And it was, in all that effort, flowing out of darkness, out of the domain of darkness, was undone by a simple negation. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Go and sin no more. Oh. It's the same voice that said, let there be light, and here it is. Right? Go and sin no more. Now, we have to come to understand that the way we overcome those things is not the way we've tried to in our discipleship programs, and our self-help things, and our holding one another accountable, and, because all those things focus on the thing. The accusation, the penalty, the damage that's done, the bruise that's left, the scarring, the marking. It focuses on that. We have to realize uh, that, that what Jesus has done is what we need to focus on. That's what Dan was talking about when he was here Mueller. Muller. He was saying, you know, you show me my sin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry out how beautiful is your redemption, Lord. And what Dan was trying to preach to us all, get us to see, is that if you do that enough, it'll become unprofitable for the enemy to throw those things at you. Because he's not in favor of starting a praise fest by bringing an accusation against you. But if you lend credence to them, you think that woman, that her head was down when she was drugged before those men? Of course it was. You think it was down when she was walking away? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think you can walk away from Jesus and the Father revealing who you are in their eyes and have your head hanging down. I don't think so. Okay, one more quick word study. How does this quick word say? Uh, the word is gnomai. It's uh, strong uh, 1096. It's used 669 times in the New Testament, and I'm going to go over 630 of them to make sure you understand what it is. No, not really. Uh, It's translated at, here we go, to become, to become, okay? To become, to come into existence, to begin to be, to receive being, absolutely. Uh, Another way it's used is to become equivalent to or to come to pass or to happen, and that's of like predicted or prophesied events in time. So things can become or come into being in time, or they can come into being in their essence, in their nature. To arise, to appear in history, to come upon the stage uh, of men appearing in public. To be made, this is an interesting one, to be made, to be born, to be done, or to be finished. All of those terms refer to becoming something that started at an earlier time. So like, to be born is the completion of being conceived, right? Or to be made is... Uh, started with a plan in the gathering of the resources or something along those lines. So that's what this means. And then to become or to be made, either to become like somebody. Matthew 10, 12 says the disciple becomes like, uh, or uh, the servant becomes like their disciple, or to be changed into something. Uh, and this reference in Matthew 21 is the allusion that Jesus made to the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Okay? So, but you get the idea of becoming, right? It's. Coming to completion, coming to fulfillment, becoming something that you're already supposed to be. All right, so this is the reason I put two of these versions of Philippians up at the beginning of the message. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's the New American Standard. I study the New American Standard a lot. You guys know that I'm not stuck in one translation. But I don't like that they used will prove the reason is its genomai it means become but when we're talking about this and we put that word prove the part in me that is a legalist the part in me that wants to work it out myself that wants to take responsibility that wants to i'm not sure that i'm really innocent i'm going to i need something to prove it I'm going to latch onto that thing and miss the entire meaning of what's being said here. Now, you're going to miss some of it with David Bentley Hart, because he uses a ton of words that you don't know what they mean. But he didn't do it there. Do all things without murmuring and disputations that you might come to be. Come to be blameless and unviolated, unmixed, harmless children of God. All right. Uh, you guys know, I'm, I quoted it earlier in, first, in the first part of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. John uh, says that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as receive him, even to those that believe on his name, he gave them the power to become, you know my, the children of God. When I first started understanding the significance of that and asked that question, is the power to become children of God the gift of the incarnation, the first questions that came back, well, are we not children of God before? No, that's not what gnomah means. Gnomah means to be, come into fruition as as you were started, to be made into what you are started, to be born into what you were conceived of. So the in just two weeks of studying this, and like Tuesday night we had these, this amazing discussion, But the problem was, as people, almost universally around the room, when we were studying on Tuesday, we had two things in our mind. We had a measuring totem. Corrupt down here, righteous up here. And when I did those things that the knot accuses me of, when I did those, People were plugging them in here and they were assigning value to the scale over here, the height on that scale as to whether they were innocent or not. And so they had a hard time going, I'm not innocent because I see these things. They're real. I did them. I said them. I thought them. And then they said, but I don't want to put too much value on that because I know that I can never get perfect to the top of that scale. So I'm going to lean on what Jesus did because he died the just for the unjust. But we made that a position that we pushed off to the future. And it left us completely vulnerable to all of the things that we're accused of. And the innocence sounded like a fantasy. The reality is, the innocence is who we were created as. The innocence is who we were created. It's a reality. It's a reality from God. You know how I know? Because God says at the core of the new covenant... He says, I'm going to write. Uh, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to write my law, or put my law in your heart and write it on your mind. And then everybody, and nobody's going to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, because everybody's going to know me from the least to the greatest. This is the covenant we live under. This is the new covenant of Jesus' blood, right? And then it says, because I'm going to have mercy on your transgressions. And your sins, I'm not going to remember anymore. What it this? God says that. That's how he lives. That's how he lives in relationship to you. That's how he thinks in relationship to you. So in the mind of the one who sees reality as it is, you and I are innocent children, accused and defaced and stained by that which is not. And we have to start allowing him to be the defining voice because what he sees is unseen to us, but is eternal. You get it? It's going to take some changing, but come to be, become, come into fulfillment. That's what we're talking about here. The other verse I wanted you to look at is, yeah, Ronnie? That gnomai uh, from the same family as gnosko, meaning to know intimately or experience what is real is to become what is real. Where it may come together, and I can't take us there right now, but in 1 John, it says when we see him, we'll be like him, because we'll see him as he is. And in in, um, 1 Corinthians 13, at the end, it says that then we will know as we are known. So I think it's related, but I haven't got it plugged together yet. Okay, okay. So, now in Colossians, colossians the reason I want to get to Colossians tonight before we shut down, is that Colossians does expressly tell us why we're innocent. And where where our innocence is rooted in. So we have something to look at. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So, Our innocence is restored to us by his death. The work he did. He did it. He's not waiting on you to decide something so he can do it. He already did it. It's a historic fact in your life and my life right now. He did die for us. And the reason is so that he can present us the way we are. Not in a substitutionary way. Not in a fake way. Not he's going to stand there with a little shield so that we can hide behind it. He wants to present us to our Father as He knows our Father sees us. And He had to overcome our sin and the deception and all the knots to do it. If indeed you consider the faith firmly established, don't make this conditional, although it is a condition. The condition is, our part is to believe what Jesus says and does. We have to believe it. We have to keep reminding ourselves. In spite of the fact that I could plug my behavior in on this scale, that scale has no meaning. It has no voice unless I give it to it. What I want to do is I want to believe in the unseen thing that is real. And that is what Jesus is doing and how he wants to present me to the Father. And what do you think the chances are of Jesus presenting you or me to the Father the way He wants us to be seen by the Father and the Father rejecting us. That would be ridiculous. Why would He do it? There's none. He is only doing what the Father is working in Him. So when Jesus takes you and presents you to the Father, it's the Father pulling you through Jesus to Himself. we got to get this in our heads. This other stuff, it's real in the realm of darkness and lies, but it's not eternally real. It's not real in the realm of the Father. It's not how God sees. That's why God can make an unqualified because in the new covenant. Because I will have mercy on your transgressions. He's not denying that we have transgressions. But he's meeting it with mercy. And your sins? I'm not going to remember them anymore. No, not, No way. If you read the Greek, it's got a double negative. No, no. This is what the gospel was. So what's the source of that hope? Look, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to his saints. When, When was this mystery established? I don't know. Past ages. But it's been hidden for a while. And it came out now in Jesus. Look, who God willed to make known what the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, in me. This is the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, Jesus died for your sins, and if you'll look at them all and confess them, that's not how it works. There's other purposes for confession. There's other purposes for recognizing and humility and prayer. We need to do it. This is the mystery of the gospel. Christ drew us into him, John 12. If I, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will drag all into me. That's where we are. We find ourselves. And it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then he said, we proclaim. Now, the reason that I have this grayed out here is is you guys know that in the New American Standard, especially if you have copy, there'll be italicized words in there that are put there for, quote, clarity. I haven't found any that cleared anything up. and And so of this church I was made a minister. Now that's referring back to the previous verse, so I understand why they put that in there. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of. The preaching of is not in the Greek text. It's in there because we think that we're all out here and that the declaration of the preaching is what gets us from out there into here. But that isn't what it says. Just don't read that in there. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the word of God. The word of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that Paul could go from one place to another, speaking to a Gentile audience, saying, I've got news for you. You live and move and have your being in him, like he told the Corinthians. He's in you. That's the gospel. Not me preaching about the possibility that he can be in you and you saying yes. Paul went to these dudes and said he's in you. That's the gospel. The word of God. Not that is. You don't need that. I even take those out of my writing. Come on, guys. The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generation, but has now been manifest to the saints. What is it? It's Christ in you. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why our innocence recovered is attainable by us. Because Christ is in us. And he's in our neighbors. And if we will declare that and not give voice to all of the lies that are seeking to layer over our dignity and our creation and our neighbor's dignity and creation, Now, do we have to believe it? Yes, we have to keep that faith. We have to believe it. Otherwise, we're going to just continue to be vulnerable to the lies. But the truth is this, and it's not rooted in in our overcoming one particular uh, violation or sin or another. We will overcome those with the power that is revealed in us, the glory that comes out. That's that's how far I've got so far. I, I think it is awesome. I think it is awesome. I think that, that we are engaged in something, and I think the way to access it is going to be the humility of being a child. And, and God is going to show us incrementally, slowly, how to do that. So that was dramatically beyond 730. I am so sorry. Don't apologize. Anyway. Um, a little bit. Uh-huh, Dave. I was the Colorado Springs Center by um, that park that's in between Bijou and Platt? Acacia. Acacia. And the guy was standing on this thing, and he was, your sin has separated you from God. Oh, wow. and he, was, he was wiping the floor with him. He was on a soapbox slapping people in the face with the Bible. And I, just, I thought of you. And I thought of what a difference the message would make if we started talking about the compassion of God, the fact that there is, there, we were talking about the difference between separation and alienation and getting people to understand that daddy absolutely loves them and how that would draw them instead of just pow, pow, because that's all I saw him doing. Yeah. And, you know, Dave, I wouldn't have an objection to that kind of message if it worked. But it doesn't. It, nobody was paying attention to it. No, it. And not, not just that, even the ones that pay attention to them, it doesn't work even worse. Because, uh, so like, there's a thing Paul talked about, I, I don't have time to go into it, but it's, uh, you have been made new in Christ, therefore don't let anybody tell you, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He said, these things give the appearance of wisdom, but they have no power over fleshly indulgence.